This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. If I haven't met you before, hi, I'm Claire, along with Owen. Um, we lead the church here. So um, here's a few facts about me that you might not know. <laughs> oh dear, Owen says. <laughs> Until I was seven years old, I was massively into ballroom dancing. <laughs> and got my bronze, silver and gold awards in the foxtrot, jive and cha-cha-cha. <laughs> I was top of my class for drama and took the starring role in a play when I was 11 years old, including having to do an on-stage kiss, which captured, captured the hearts of the whole audience. Here's a photo of me when I was nine, and I was chosen to be maid of honour um, for our May Day festivities, including dr- riding in a horse-drawn carriage and having my, ev- um, my very um, own dress fitted and made. And then I was going to include another little cute photo of me, but you miss out on that. Hey, never mind, another time. Um, at age 10, I was chosen to represent the school in a highway code competition. <laughs> and scored the highest marks. I distinctly remember being so pleased with one of the answers that I knew. The question was, if you are taking a group of cows down the road, (laughs) do you A, take them on the left, B, take them on the right, or C, split them down into smaller groups? What do you think? No idea. Left, right. Smaller groups, yes, smaller groups. Of course, at age 10, I knew that. No. <laughs> but, you know, it is actually ridiculous, 38 years on, that that still sticks in my mind, that I can remember that question and my answer to it. Um, but it's something that I felt proud of at the time. It was an achievement because I had scored the highest marks for my team. Um, but, you know, this is the world that we live in. From a very early age, we are all encouraged to accomplish, to do well, and to achieve, right from, you know, well done, you've done a wee on the potty, have a chocolate button, all the way through school, you know, exams, sports achievements, driving tests, maybe university, work promotion, and so on. And, you know, that is all brilliant. You know, that we should flourish and work to blossom and reach our full potential. It's one of the joys of life. It is wonderful. However, we soon come to realise in life that when we do well, we are affirmed and admired and praised. And when we don't, there is a lack of those things. And from an early age, we can begin to build a narrative that our acceptance hinges on our behaviour. Think about peer pressure at school and the temptation to conform and to be like our friends, just to feel included. Very early on, we can begin to believe that our acceptance from others, our value and our worth are based on our external talents and abilities and what we do. So what do people think of me? Am I good enough? Am I clever enough? Am I funny enough? Am I kind enough? Am I sporty enough? Whatever it may be. And we adopt the narrative of performance-based acceptance, which produces a rather unstable world of highly conditional love. We feel loved when we do well. 
We feel liked. We feel accepted. And when we don't, we feel rubbish. We question whether people really like us. And maybe we don't even like ourselves. And because this is so much part of the way that we experience the world and we see the world, it's only natural that we would project the same understanding onto God. God only loves us when we're good. Many of us live with this false narrative, the assumption that God's love is conditional. Our behaviour, it's assumed, determines how God feels about us. God looks on us and smiles when we keep our minds, hands and hearts pure. But the moment we sin, God draws away. He becomes distant. He holds himself back from us. The only way to get God to turn back to us is by resuming our good behaviour. If you ask the average person, what must you do to get God to like you or bless you? The answer would most likely be, well, I think I'd have to go to church, read my Bible, give some money, serve those in need. Oh, and of course, be good. I need to keep sin to a minimum. In this way, we feel we can influence how God feels about us by doing the things on the list. But this is legalism, the attempt to earn God's love and favour through our actions. And we get drawn to legalistic behaviours because they provide a sense of control. But ironically, performance-based acceptance does nothing but leave us in a state of constant uncertainty and anxiety, wondering if we've ever done enough, if we've hit the mark or not. Excuse me a moment. It's very hot today, isn't it? Okay. So, a few years ago, I took up the spiritual discipline of swearing. I was going through the six-month Emotionally Focused course. There's information about it on our website. And at the heart of the course is to look into the internal vows that we've made during our formative years. That um, are vows that now shape the way that we are, the way that we turn up in situations, the way that we interact with others. And these vows can come as a reaction to negative experiences or positive ones. And I realized that one of my internal vows was to be good at all costs. I had grown up in a church context where I had been loved and affirmed, and I happily took on the role of the good Christian girl. And that only continued when we got married, joined a church, joined a staff team, led a church, and so on. And you know, that might not sound like a bad thing in itself, to be good, but I realised I placed such high standards on myself. It would cause me anxiety and tie me up in knots, cause me to fret about the smallest, littlest things. It would hold me back from being real and honest and vulnerable. And it had the potential to make me distant from my friends and not so much fun at times. 
So for me, the spiritual discipline of swearing is a healthy one. Sometimes a swear word really is the best expression for a situation that you're in. Not only when it's just funny, but also when maybe your friend is going through something that only a swear word can adequately communicate. You really get what they're going through. My vow to be good was completely based on the false narrative of performance-based acceptance, both in relation to other people and to God. And this spiritual discipline of swearing is just a little example, but it's an example of the freedom that comes when we can rest back in the unconditional love of God. I would rather risk doing something wrong if it means I am more real, more relaxed, and a better friend. The good news is that whilst this false narrative of performance-based acceptance might be something that we fall into, it is not Jesus' narrative. In fact, he seemed to go out of his way in both words and actions to tell the complete opposite story about God. I challenge you to look through the New Testament and find a passage in which Jesus tells us that God only loves us when we're good or when we engage in religious activities. You won't find one. Instead, Jesus shows us a God who offers unconditional acceptance to all people. Now remember, Jesus is the exact representation of God. He's God in flesh. Whatever Jesus is like is exactly what God is like. And of course, I'm not saying that we can reduce God down to a first century Jewish male. Of course not. God is so much more than that. But when we look at Jesus' character and actions and the things he says, we can be sure that those are exactly like God's because Jesus is God. So let's look at a story in Matthew's Gospel. It's Matthew 9, 9 to 13. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. So Matthew was a tax collector, which was a despicable occupation for Jewish men. Tax collectors typically sat in roadside booths, like toll booths, collecting taxes from the Jewish people for the occupying Roman government. They worked for the bad guys, so to speak. But even worse, they were notorious for skimming off money for themselves. So they were thought of as both traitors and cheats, so not a great combination. But here we see that Jesus invites Matthew, a tax collector, to be one of his disciples. This is amazing, considering that in the first century, a rabbi was usually very selective when choosing his disciples. Being selected by a rabbi was a rare and great privilege, 
that was offered only to those who were deemed especially righteous. So Jesus' choice here is ludicrous and shocking. After being chosen, Matthew invites Jesus to dine with him in his home, and many other tax collectors and sinners ate with them also. And Jesus' acceptance of this is a sign of his love and acceptance of them. Now, I just want to take a moment to expand on the word sinners, because I never really liked this word, because it sounds so condemnatory, and not a label I would generally choose to describe someone with. Um, but there's no obvious alternative word to supplant into these verses, so I just want to explain it a little within the context. In its biblical usage, sin is not just breaking a rule or doing some heinous crime. The New Testament Greek word is harmateia, which means missing the mark, like an archer firing arrows at a target and his arrows are falling short. So to sin is to miss the mark, to fall short of God's best for us in terms of being the person God would have us be and what God would have us do. So to be a sinner in this context means to be someone whose life is characterised, not just the odd mistake, by falling short of God's best and often not even knowing or caring. In the two greatest commandments, we see that God's best for us is that we would love God and love others as ourselves. Essentially, that we would be in right relationship with God and right relationship with other people. So then possibly the easiest way to think of sin is selfishness. Selfishness is putting me first, my interests, my needs, serving me rather than serving others and serving God, doing what I want and not caring who gets hurt in the process. And we can see how selfishness or sin leads to breakdown in relationship with others, with God and also with the world in which we live. So it's probably fair to say with this definition that we all at times miss the mark on God's best for us. But here's the amazing thing. When the Pharisees, a group of strict religious men, question why Jesus would be eating with sinners and tax collectors. Jesus replies in verse 12, he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, for I have not come to call the righteous, those in right relationship with God and others already, but sinners. Now, as well as leading this church, I'm also a physio. When a patient of mine hurts their back or their knee, they don't think, oh my goodness, I've hurt my back. I must stay away from the physio. I can't possibly go and tell her what I've done. I know, I'll wait until I'm feeling better and then I'll go and see her. <laughs> of course not, that's ridiculous. Instead, they call up, they get an appointment as soon as possible and they come and tell me all about it. They tell me every little detail because they know I want to know, because that's what I'm there for. I'm there to help. And it's exactly the same with God. When we mess up, fall short, are not our best self, when we feel like we've let ourselves down or let someone else down, we don't need to keep our distance. Jesus is there to help. Jesus wouldn't keep his distance. He'd come round to our house for tea if he could. 
In John 3, 17, it says this, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God loves us in spite of our brokenness and the messes we make. And this is the only real proof of genuine love. Apostle Paul echoes this when he writes, but God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's no ounce of performance-based acceptance in that. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying that God takes our sin lightly, that he's not bothered if we mess up or do our own thing and ignore him. Of course, that's not the case. Our sin hurts us and it hurts other people. God hates it when that happens. But he is able to separate out who we are from what we do. So rather than performance-based acceptance, instead we have unconditional love, unbounded, lavish, and limitless, unshakable, unaltering, unrelenting love. Jesus tells the well-known parable of the prodigal son to make this point. Prodigal means recklessly extravagant. And actually, I just want to say before I go on, I'm talking about love, and we hear about love all the time, and we've heard about love for many years, many of us have. But just let me, I just want to take a moment just to invite the Holy Spirit, because what I don't want is for these words just to wash over and just to the things we've heard before. The only real thing when we come together is actually if we encounter God. Okay, so I just want to take a moment. Jesus, um, Father God, your love is incredible, and we have heard of your love so much and we're so thankful for your love but God there is more there is more and we struggle to be able to grasp what it really means and Father God I just ask in these next few moments as we are contemplating as we are thinking again will you break through to our hearts will you give us a fresh revelation of what your unconditional love really means, what it means for us, what it means for our friends, what it means for the person down the street. Will you blow our minds away? Because you are love. It is the essence of who you are. There's nothing more. There's nothing greater. So Holy Spirit, will you help us right now? Just show us more of yourself. Amen. Okay. So back to the prodigal father. So prodigal means recklessly extravagant. We attach this word prodigal to the younger son, who is the one in the story who squanders and recklessly spends all of his inheritance. But it's actually the father who is the most recklessly extravagant, offering his wealth to his ungrateful son and then lavishly loving the son when he returns. So I just want, you've 
probably heard this story. If you haven't heard this story before, I did actually speak on it on October the 16th last year, if you'd like to listen to it another time in more detail. But I just want to take a few points, just simple points from the story that just really speak into this topic of truly unconditional love. So if you're not familiar with it, a father has two sons and the younger of his sons asks for his inheritance early so he can go off on his own. This was seen as a stunning and utterly disrespectful request in those times. It's as if he was saying that he wishes his father was dead. And yet, even more shockingly, his father grants it to him. So his son heads off, wasting all his money, living the high life, but eventually runs out of money and hits rock bottom. Things become so bad for the son that he realises even his father's servants are better off than he is. And so he rehearses an apology in his mind and makes a plan to return and ask to be made one of his father's servants. And the story makes a surprising turn in possibly one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. We read, But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. We're giving, given the sense that the father has been looking and longing for his son's return, perhaps every day. And when he sees his son, his first reaction is that he is filled with compassion. This is no small deal. In the world of Jesus' day, the father had the right to take his son before the elders and have him stoned, perhaps even to death. And no one would have questioned the father had he done this. Justice would have been served. But instead, the father hugs the son. He doesn't even wait for an apology. He kisses him, which is a sign of forgiveness. He welcomes him and throws him a party. He asks for his servants to bring him a robe and a ring and some shoes. Three signs of restored sonship. His position has been restored. He has lost nothing and he deserves none of it. Reckless extravagance. The father is holding nothing back. And Jesus tells this story because he wants us to understand that the extravagant, reckless love in the story is exactly the same love that God poured out to each of us, pours out to each of us, holding nothing back, lavish, ridiculous, unmerited, unbounded, unlimited, and free. It doesn't matter how we feel about ourselves. It doesn't matter how much we've messed up. It doesn't matter how uh, we think, how, it doesn't matter if we think we've done things that have hurt or offended God. None of that, however bad it may seem, can stand in the way of God's unrelenting, recklessly extravagant love. Now, I just want to mention, obviously today is Father's Day. We are celebrating and remembering our fathers. And for many of us, this is a great day. For some of us, this is a difficult day because our fathers are no longer with us. And still, for others of us, it's a difficult day because our fathers did not treat us as a father should. And maybe for you, this story and image of God as father is not a helpful one. And I just want to encourage you that if that is the case, to not let this image of father get in the way 
of you grasping God's character and nature. Jesus uses the image of Father, and he does this often, but he's using a metaphor to communicate the character and nature of God. God is not biologically male. That's not a box we can put God in. There are many other images in the Bible to describe who God is. Friend, brother, saviour, lion, eagle, and also female attributes like mother hen. So my prayer for you is that you can see the extravagant, unconditional love that Jesus is trying to, trying to communicate here through this story. And that over time, as you encounter the extravagant love in your own life, that God might redefine for you what Father means and bring healing to you. So this is who God is. God is love, limitless, unconditional love. 1 John 4.8 um, says that God is love. And um, there's a passage, a well-known passage that gets spoken about at weddings, Corinthians 13. Um, and here Paul is writing about how we live together in community with love as the core of our life together. And as God is love, for a moment I just want to insert God for the word love into this passage. God is is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God does not boast. God is not proud. God is not rude. God is not self-seeking. God is not easily angered. God keeps no record of wrongs. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. God always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. God never fails. Now let's just go back to the story for a moment because, of course, that is not the end of the parable. There were two groups of people listening, the tax collectors and sinners and the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And Jesus was not just speaking to the downtrodden and marginalised he was also speaking to the upright religious leaders who struggled to accept the radical message of God's unconditional and limitless love. You see, Jesus doesn't want to leave anyone out on being able to experience and receive God's love. God's extravagant, reckless love is for everyone, regardless of status or position or how we see ourselves. The character of the elder brother represents the part of us that is not comfortable with God's unconditional love for everyone, or even maybe for ourselves. The eldest son is working in the field when he hears a party going on. He comes into the house to discover a feast in his brother's honor, so he complains to his father, this is unfair, I work hard 
every day, and I've never been given a party like this. This horrible son of yours, and I refuse to call him brother, nearly ruined our estate and spent it on prostitutes, and you throw him a feast? The father reminds the elder brother that there is no injustice in his actions. He says, all that is mine is yours. And this is similar to the parable of the workers in the vineyard who worked different amounts for the same wage. Jesus is striking at the heart of the problem we have with grace. We don't like it. It seems unfair. But in reality, it is perfectly fair. God is gracious to all. And it smacks against our performance-based narrative. The point is that it's not our sin that stops us experiencing God's gracious, unconditional love. It's our refusal to accept his gracious, unconditional love. Sometimes it seems too good to be true. It's hard to believe. Sometimes we would rather earn it, prove ourselves, feel deserving of it. This performance-based narrative is so deeply embedded with us. And so the question I believe God is asking each of us today is, will you let me love you? Now, of course, we can, can't stop God loving us. But the sense of, will you let me love you? Will you receive the fullness of my unconditional love for you? David Benner, in his book, Surrender to Love, says that we come to the experiential knowing of God's love through contemplative knowing. And he says this, this knowing results from meeting with God in a contemplative state. It comes from sitting at the feet of Jesus, gazing into his face and listening to his assurances of love for me. It comes from letting God's love wash over me, not simply trying to believe it. It comes from soaking in the scriptural assurances of such love, not simply reading them and trying to remember or believe them. It comes from spending time with God, observing how he looks at me. It comes from watching his watchfulness over me and listening to his protestations of love for me. In 1 John 3, John exhorts us to take a heart-moving look at the amazing love which God has for us as his children. He says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. It is this love that is the basis of transformation in our lives back into the people we were created to be. Fully loved, fully free, fully accepted and fully known. We become the best version of ourselves, not missing the mark, with the power to love God and to love others as we were made to do. When we live loved in our identity as a child of God, it no longer matters what people think of us. We are free. We don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to be a success. We don't have to be right. We don't have to live by fear, rejection, 
or anxiety. We don't need to strive for significance. Henry Nguyen was a Dutch Catholic priest and theologian in the 20th century, and he said, my true spiritual work is to let myself be loved, fully and completely, and to trust that in that love, I will come to the fulfillment of my vocation. I keep trying to bring my wandering, restless, anxious self home so that I can rest there in the embrace of love. So I just want to finish briefly with sharing uh, an illustration that I came across uh, a few years ago. So Karen and Owen, could you just um, bring the table up here? Thank you. Karen wondered if I might be doing a magic trick, but I'm not. Okay, so this is going to be brief, don't worry. <laughs> um, okay, so this glass ooh, represents our hearts, and this vase represents our lives. And um, when we first come to know God, um, we get a sense of his love and his pleasure over us and it's like he fills our hearts and our hearts begin to beat in rhythm with him he fills our hearts with his love and then as we get to know him more and get to realize how amazing he is his love overflows into other areas of our lives and we become healed up and he heals our hurts and our pains. And we become more secure in his never-ending love for us. There we go. And that's us filled up with God's love. But this is just a shadow of his love for us, of the height, the depth, the length, the breadth. We can't contain his love. And his love for us is not dependent on us. So, Karen, could you come and help me? There you go. <laughs> Off you go. Yeah. So God's love is bottomless. It's fathomless. It overflows. It is never ending. It goes on and on. It's ridiculous. It's unrelenting. It's unquenchable. It's inexplicable. It's uh, unshakable. It's lavish, extravagant, exuberant. Keep going. It just goes on and on and on and on. And I've got to just, yay! I've got to just, just, just do the whole lot. <laughs> I got to spun a brush afterwards. Um, and that is his love. And so what we're just going to do for a moment, that probably is actually enough. <laughs> Maybe there is a little, no, no, I'm joking. <laughs> okay, great. Um, brilliant. So we're just going to take a moment, if you guys don't mind just um, taking that down onto there. 
the band are going to come up and just sing over us. And I just wanted to take a few moments just to rest in that place of with Jesus, he's here, contemplating his never-ending, overflowing love for each of us. And as we do that, I also just want to invite you to come here and to fill a little bag, just like I have done already, in true Billy Peter style, like that. Tiny little bag of some of this rice. And then take it and put it somewhere where you might find it often, maybe in a coat pocket, maybe in the compartment in your car, maybe in your handbag, maybe in the drawer by your bed. As a reminder, not only of the never-ending, everlasting love of God, but a reminder to live loved, to live in that never-ending, unconditional love.